Hey, listeners, just to let you know that this episode talks about racism and racial violence, but more importantly, it talks about the heroic resistance to that racism and racial violence. You ever hear the Soviet saying, but you're lynching blacks? No? Look it up. There's even a Wikipedia page about it. And it even found its way in the Soviet jokes, like this one. An American reporter asks a Soviet official, can a Soviet engineer buy a car? After a long silence, the Soviet official replies, but you lynch blacks. Believe it or not, but your lynching blacks has made a comeback. Since 2016, many Americans imagine Russia lurking behind every political or social ill, especially if it concerns black people. It's a return to an old American pastime that every time black people exercise political agency, the communists, or just the Russians, are using race to sow division and chaos in the United States. Do you have any reason to believe that Russia is trying to fuel some of the civil unrest? Russian trolls use social media to stoke racial division. The Russians exploited Black Lives Matter. Oh, so political discord. Uh, to try to divide people along racial creating lines. Creating chaos, creating a climate of incivility. To try and pit Americans against one another. Such hysteria, and it is hysteria, inevitably sparks Cold War memories of the Soviet Union pointing to American racism to sow division. Remember in episode three how Americans hit the USSR for its failure to provide consumer plenty? The USSR punched back with racism. Many people think, and I did too, that but you're lynching blacks was just a whataboutism, an easy Soviet comeback to deflect criticism for repressing its own citizens, a stick to strike at America's chronic Achilles heel, racism. But honestly, when it comes to American racism, I think it's fair to ask, well, yeah, what about that? Because claiming whataboutism suggests American racism isn't a big deal, or at least no one has the right to reproach you for it. But many thought American racism was a big deal during the Cold War, and not just the Soviets. Whatabouts came from all corners of the world. Then, as now, racism exposed the hypocrisies and limits of American democracy. So it's not surprising that people pestered Teddy Rowe about American racism throughout his journey in the USSR. Sometimes they were pretty blunt. Why are you still lynching blacks in the United States? I would say, look, uh, if you give me time to make two sentences and respond to that, I would like it. Sometimes I didn't get the chance. It was only many years later, well after the Cold War, that I realized that just dismissing, even ridiculing, Soviet criticism of American racism was morally suspect. Brushing it off also ignored a lot of the story. So in the tradition of lurking Russians, let's look behind what is often cast off as just propaganda to see if there's something bigger going on and how Teddy's experience with questions about American racism in the USSR speaks to a long tradition of Soviet anti-racism. I'm Sean Guillory, your guide on this journey. This is Teddy Goes to the USSR, episode four, Teddy Talks About Race. Act one, race and the Cold War. 
two issues defined the United States in the 1960s, race relations and the Vietnam War. And at a time when decolonization was sweeping Africa and Asia, Vietnam and the black American freedom struggle were joined at the hip. American foreign wars complemented its domestic ones, and the thing that bound them was racism. Well, American propagandists, it's important to uh, note, considered race our biggest vulnerability internationally. That's Laura Belmonte, a historian at Virginia Tech. You heard her in episode three. She says that this is why the State Department lent its voice to the NAACP's legal efforts in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. That you start to see State Department officials write amicus curiae briefs saying that the fact that we have institutionalized and informal forms of racial segregation is a, a real sore point that communist propagandists you know, are having a field day with. The birth of a more visible civil rights struggle made racism impossible for American officials to ignore. You have some propaganda disasters for the United States. In, For instance, when the Eisenhower administration is forced to send in U.S. troops to Little Rock, Arkansas, in order to have uh, federal rulings demanding uh, integration be enforced, this is the same month that the Soviets have beaten the United States into space with Sputnik. Been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik. The first man... Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent colored students from going to the school their own children attend. Picketing the school, they clash with the police. The law of the and land so they're dealing with this one-two punch of, here's something that we just can't push away uh, about saying, oh, we don't have any problems with race. And Sputnik defied the claim that the U.S. was the world leader in science and technology. And so it really begins gelling in ways that the federal government recognizes we can't just give this lip service if we're going to guard our international reputation. Despite the State Department's urging, the American government didn't voluntarily give black people justice. Just the opposite. State repression against those fighting for civil rights was more the norm. And that made charging the United States with hypocrisy all the easier. And yet they were holier than thou with the population and they were holier than thou with the visitors. If, if they would come to you and say something to you critically of, of the Negro situation in America or the Vietnam War or something, they, they had every right to explore that, that uh, subject, but they weren't interested in exploring. Race in particular was always brought up. That's Andrew Jacobs. You heard him in episodes one and two. He wrote a study of American tourism in the USSR during the Cold War. There's one particular tourist who recalled in her memoir that she's asked almost randomly, have you ever seen a lynching? Which is just a, kind of a weird question to ask, but the idea of American, American lynchings was so prominent in the Soviet Union that it's just an obvious question for them, supposedly. But quizzing Americans about lynching had another motive. Tourism was a rare opportunity for Soviet officials to have direct contact with regular Americans. Asking pointed questions was a heat check 
on how Americans felt about controversial issues. One other benefit of bringing tourists over is that they could try and gauge American public opinion. So they often brought up kind of hot button topics like Vietnam in the 60s and 70s or the racial issues in the United States. They also thought those were winning issues for their side in these discussion groups and they could put aside any criticism of the Soviet Union. You know, if there's a lynching episode in the United States, they are all out there on Radio Moscow and just saying, here they are telling you that they're the leaders of democracy, that they care about human rights, and yet look at this horrific violence. Another Cold War backdrop was decolonization, and banging on American racism was a way for the Soviets to woo nearly independent African nations to their side. This becomes, well, how are you any different United States than the British or the French who have racially suppressed us for you know, decades. Why is your message better than what the Soviets are offering where they propagate a message of racial inclusion? Black foreign dignitaries experienced America's Achilles heel firsthand. In 1961, Malik So, the Chadian ambassador to the US, got Jim Crowed when a diner in Maryland refused him service. African officials naturally viewed their treatment through a Cold War and post-colonial lens. One African diplomat told the Washington Post, we have no particular affection for the Russians, but their imperialism isn't racist. Poles and Uzbeks are both treated badly, but they are treated the same. Racism, as it has been practiced by Western nations, touches at our rawest spot. American civil rights activists rightly understood that the U.S. had little chance of courting Africans when it denied rights to its own black citizens. Here's the famous black trade unionist and civil rights organizer, A. Philip Randolph, addressing this very issue in a speech at the National Press Club days before the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. Africa will not trust the United States in its promise to the peoples of Africa unless they realize and understand that the Negroes here in America are giving an evincing basic trust in the promises that have been made by our own country to them. Since American racism was an international issue in the Cold War contest, how did American propaganda explain its Achilles heel to the rest of the world? They create these pamphlets, like one of the most famous ones is The Negro in American Life, where they try to make the case of, oh, well, look at the progress there's been here. You know, um, people who were once enslaved can now, you know, own property or can now have jobs. The long and heroic struggle of Negro and white alike against the evils of race prejudice is one of the greatest epochs in our nation's history. We have broken many shackles and won our way to the front lines of our national, artistic, athletic, and intellectual endeavor. We have truly, in the United States, come a long way, but we still have a good way to go. But if you peel down the layers of the statistics that show there are still persistent wage gaps, and then you have these episodes of racial violence, any of the progress they made is very fragile and sometimes just blows up.
like it does in Birmingham in 1963, where images of uh, Bull Connor and the police shooting fire hoses at peaceful civil rights demonstrators, most of whom are minors, go all over the world. These are the front lines of the battle between Dr. Martin Luther King's Negro Disciples of Nonviolence and the uniformed forces of Birmingham led by Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor, who says, we were trying to be nice to them, but they won't let us be. The Negro leaders say this will lay the whole issue before the conscience of the community and the nation. Where Birmingham further tarnished America's image internationally, American propagandists spun the march on Washington into the redemption of American democracy and freedom. This narrative was visualized in James Blue's film, The March, for the United States Information Agency. Carl Rowan, the then newly appointed head of USIA and the first black man to serve on the National Security Council, framed the march this way. I believe that this demonstration of both whites and Negroes, supported by the federal government and by both President Johnson and the late President Kennedy, is a profound example of the procedures unfettered men use to broaden the horizons of freedom and deepen the meaning of personal liberty. In the early 1960s, Teddy was busy working on civil rights legislation with Senator Mike Mansfield. He too saw civil rights as a narrative of progress and exemplifying American ideals. But when Soviet people confronted him on race, he rebutted with another Cold War theme, consumerism. And the argument that I used to best advantage, not only for the official people who were jumping on me, but also for uh, people that I met on the sidewalk, etc., is that despite the problems for our black uh, friends and neighbors, and they were many, there's blacks in America owned more automobiles than existed in the Soviet Union. Most Americans visiting behind the Iron Curtain played defense when it came to questions about race. The best they could do as ambassadors was to put up with queries, mumble some defense, or just hope the issue would quickly go away. Some tourists definitely did take seriously the idea that they were ambassadors for the United States, and they did need to put kind of the country's best foot forward and would defend their country. So a lot, some wouldn't defend the United States either. They would just see it as an awkward topic and let it pass. Act two, Black Lives Matter. In 1958, Senator Hubert Humphrey left Soviet Russia with a tale for the ages. Nikita Khrushchev had demanded Western powers withdraw from Berlin, and Humphrey was in Moscow for a face-to-face -face with the Soviet leader to straighten things out. The senator figured he'd meet Khrushchev for maybe 90 minutes, tops. It turned into an extraordinary eight-hour sit-down. When it was over, Humphrey, glad to have survived, quipped, I'm the only living American that's gone to the men's room three times in one day in the Kremlin. Khrushchev impressed Humphrey with his knowledge of the United States. He clearly had been reading up, especially when it came to race in America. According to Humphrey, at some point Khrushchev tore off on a whole long lecture, the best speech I could ever make in my life on anti-racialism. Boy, he really gave me a talk on that. 
Many of us think that the Soviet jabs at the U.S. for racism was all just propaganda. But Khrushchev's harangue of Humphrey is evidence that that's too simple. And as we learned in Act One, the Soviets weren't alone. Condemnations of American racism came from all corners of the world. The Soviets were just one particularly important critic. But the reasons for the Soviet concern about racism go beyond propaganda, and the history of Soviet anti-racism is a complicated one with all the twists, turns, and knots you'd expect. Anti-racism was an important feature of Soviet ideology. It flowed directly from Leninist anti-imperialism and solidarity with colonized people. In the early 20th century, imperialism was racialized. The white northern powers ruled over the colored south. Anti-imperialism demanded anti-racism. The Soviets understood racism as one of the worst aspects of capitalism. Capitalism required imperialism to expand markets, capture labor, and extract raw materials, and racism provided the moral and scientific justification. Civilizing people of color was the white man's burden, as the English defender of imperialism, Rudyard Kipling, put it. The United States represented the epitome of a racist society. Racism exemplified the rot at the core of American liberal democracy. And the USSR, by contrast, presented itself as a raceless society and ally to the black freedom struggle. Uh, my name is Maxim Matusevich. I'm a professor of global history at Seton Hall University. First and foremost, anti-racism was one of the central tenets of Marxism-Leninism. Uh, the Soviets, I think, especially in the 20s and the 30s, uh, they expressed something that was very genuine. But there was a second moving part here, uh, that also this anti-racism is very practical, especially with the rise of the Cold War. It sort of feeds the needs of Soviet foreign policy. But Soviet anti-racism wasn't just about internationalism and foreign policy. Keep in mind, anti-racism was directed at Soviet people. Soviet reporting on racism in the capitalist and colonial world was heuristic. To be a good Soviet citizen required the rejection of racial and ethnic hatred and standing in solidarity with the racially or ethnically oppressed. It really was one of the central ones, you know, to become a new Soviet man or a new Soviet woman really meant to become an anti-racist. Maxim says that this changed with the rise of Russian nationalism during World War II anti-racism became more paternalistic. The attitude is more condescending. We, we see that, of course, of course, uh, we can talk about paternalism and people did uh, in the 1930s. But, you know, this becomes even more so after the war, uh, where black people are being presented as the wards of the state. And then it translates, I think, into the way uh, the Soviets uh, support Africa. Soviet anti-racism lost much of its radicalism from the 1930s during the Cold War. As Senator Humphrey could attest, anti-racist sentiment remained, but it also became more instrumental. Foreign policy goals, like jousting with the U.S. over newly decolonized states, produced a more conditional, pragmatic, and as a result, more paternalistic Soviet anti-racism. They recognize the potential of the rise of this new independent post-colonial Africa, and that's when the rhetoric changes. It becomes much more openly pro-independence in Africa. What was controversial, though, uh, it was the kind of 
liberation figures that didn't fit uh, with this Soviet canon. And uh, I mean, Kwame Nkrumah, for example, is a good example. You know, eventually, of course, he becomes a big friend of the Soviet Union. Moscow determined to make it clear that President Nkrumah was the most welcome visitor to Russia. The top men were there to meet him, including Mr. K at his most effusive. But, uh, you know, this happens only by 1958-59. Before that, the Soviets are very ambivalent about him. And when you look at uh, the leaders of the new independent nation states, which actually are pro-Western, that's where the gloves come off. Obviously, at least in terms of African liberation, you know, African liberation was supported. Uh, there is no question about it, and uh, in the word and in deed. When it came to African Americans, like so much in the Soviet Union, ideologists stuffed anti-racism into a Marxist-Leninist box. And sometimes it fit like a square in a triangle. This created all sorts of generalizations. So black Americans, for example, were both the most oppressed and the most primed for revolution. Soviet anti-racism often wasn't interested in the diverse social and cultural tapestry of black American life. African Americans were a monolith. They lived in either cluttered, impoverished ghettos or desolate rural villages. Soviet ideology regularly reduced black people to mere victims of racial capitalism. And these tropes often underestimated black people's self-determination and smoothed over the often fractious politics of black America. It never really gained the nuance <laughs> and the sophistication that one would expect might occur with greater study and the sort of evolution of looking at American race relations. So my name is Meredith Roman. I'm a, an associate professor at SUNY Brockport. And the author of Opposing Jim Crow, African Americans and the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism, 1928 to 1937. She told me that Soviet anti-racism is... I think there's still a very superficial understanding that focuses on big issues like violence, like poverty, but which can't necessarily explain why there are some African-Americans who are successful. In that sense, I think it, it was just about propaganda. There wasn't necessarily a desire to really fully understand the, the circumstances, and especially if it didn't fit into this sort of Marxist-Leninist you know, sort of framework. Act three, the shame of America. So Teddy getting peppered by questions about American racism had larger historical contexts. And while dings from his Soviet hosts could be frustrating, as we heard, the Soviet focus on American racism stretched back to the 1920s. And during the Cold War, the USSR wasn't alone in its fascination and bewilderment with US race relations. As for Teddy, he was hardly naive when it came to U.S. racism. He spent much of the 1960s working in Congress, and questions of civil rights occupied a lot of the political debate on the Hill and in the streets. So Teddy's history with American racism and civil rights was deeply personal. I grew up in lily-white western United States. There was only uh, maybe three blacks living in my hometown. When I was drafted into the Army, I served in the segregated South for two years. I was uh, 
not only aware of segregation, but I saw the, 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 the rotten fruits of segregation. When I was a, a scholarship winner to come to the Congress as a fellow in, with a fellowship, I, my first job was one half of a year with a segregationist congressman from Alabama where I got to see a whole lot more. That segregationist was Congressman Amistad Selden of Alabama. Selden represented Alabama's 5th District in the House throughout much of the 1950s and 1960s. Judging from newspaper reports, Selden had three political obsessions, Alabama's white farmers, segregation, and anti-communism. In the spring of 1964, as Congress debated the Civil Rights Act, Selden denounced civil rights extremism and activist mob tactics, and warned of a coming white resentment to what he called special rights. You could see the depth of feeling. When, when a letter would come in, the staff would all gather around and they would scrutinize the return addresses to determine whether they lived in the black part of town or the white part of town. They would know. I would see letters and they would write on a piece of paper with red ink and so hard it would tear holes in the paper. A few months later, with his stint with Selden behind him, Teddy landed what he called the top spot on the hill. I negotiated a half a year in the Senate with Mike Mansfield, who happened to be senator from the state of Montana, and he was majority leader. I drew the duty of monitoring the final speech by the Southerners, which was overnight 14 hours and 13 minutes by Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. Pop goes the country is delighted to welcome you, the United States Senator from the state of West Virginia and the Senate Majority Leader of the United States Senate, Senator Robert Byrd. Byrd put on quite a show in his 14-hour and 13-minute speech on the Senate floor. He read from the Magna Carta. He claimed that the Civil Rights Act undermined so-called Anglo-Saxon constitutionalism. He even mined biblical scripture to defend segregation. The speech ranks with some of the greatest segregationist efforts against racial equality. Just that one bill was 80 days, eight zero days, more or less day and night. Byrd's speech was hardly out of character for the Dixiecrats, nor was the length. In all, the Dixiecrat filibuster in the spring of 1964 added up to 534 working hours and spanned 63,000 pages of the congressional record. And I was merely making a last minute try to uh, do what I could to perhaps uh, awaken the uh, people generally as to the dangers as I see them in this bill, and I thought that it just might uh, be of some assistance. And that was the civil rights bill. Then we had voting rights, and we had discrimination in housing. Uh, so I was pretty prepped for any questions that I got on my, on my tour of the Soviet Union. Got my razor, my gadolin gun, I'm going up crippled, going in a row. Print 
news was the primary information source in the Soviet Union. The Soviet press churned out hundreds of cheap, accessible newspapers to pepper Soviet citizens with news about the outside world. Crack open any Soviet newspaper in the 1960s. If it featured an article on the United States, there's a good chance it was about racism and the civil rights movement. Take this headline from a May 1961 Izvestia article on the racist assault on the Freedom Riders in Montgomery, Alabama. Alabama is an arena of terror. Crowds of roaring racists, police, the KKK, attack Negroes. American Nazis rear their heads. Soviet reports on American racism turned on several themes. It proved the violence of capitalism, the emptiness of bourgeois rights, and hypocrisy of American freedom. Coverage of the civil rights movement was also good drama. It had homegrown villains, white racists, the police, the KKK, and heroes, blacks fighting for their rights. Soviet correspondents stationed in America shocked Soviet readers. It's no wonder that questions to American tourists like Teddy about lynching blacks expressed both horror and bewilderment. These reports painted a stark contrast to Soviet society as a harmonious, raceless society. And the civil rights movement served as a double whammy of sorts. It provided ample material for Soviet condemnations of racism and capitalism, and a way to hit its Cold War rival in a very soft spot. But even after all these years of studying the Soviet Union, I couldn't help wonder, was it all just grist for propaganda? I am a child of the Cold War after all. Propaganda is such a, such a strange concept. That's Dina Feinberg. You might remember her from episodes two and three. Of course, if you read Crocodile or Pravda at the time, this is what you see. And you see a lot of civil rights and you see a lot of young people protesting against Vietnam. But first of all, this is what's happened in the United States in 68. Effectively, propaganda or not, they, if they want to report about what's going on, this is what they are kind of surrounded by. This is something often missed when it comes to the Soviet media. In the 1960s, civil rights and Vietnam were the stories of the day. It would be strange if foreign correspondents didn't devote a good portion of news to them. The drama of both of these generation-defining events made for good copy and a good window into America. They also know that this story interests young Soviet people. It's a story about young people rebelling against the system, which is appealing to young people. It's a story about rock and roll, blue jeans, fashion, hippies, etc., also appealing to young people. Um, it's also a story about, you know, fight for justice and fight for civil rights and fight for equality and fight against the war, which is really is a horrible war. So there are value things appealing to this. And not just with Soviet readers. The youth protests, the anti-war and civil rights movement also jived with Soviet correspondents' own ethics and sense of justice, especially racism. Which they couldn't stomach and kind of found appalling. And really, a lot of them were very moved by the civil rights movement and by what they saw and reflected on this, you know, in great depth. Soviet newspapers covered racism in the U.S. in a variety of forms. It sometimes printed translations of American press reports. Or there were small reports from the European press to say that even the U.S.'s Cold War allies condemned American racism. 
A large bulk of articles were based on foreign press reports or from Soviet correspondents working in America. Soviet journalists, too, had to rely on American television or press reports because U.S. officials often denied them travel to the South. There was like no official policy, but there was like a very clear sense in the archive, and I almost quote here from memory, it would be desirable to deny them eyewitness status of disturbances. Here's a sample from a report by L. Vilichansky on Birmingham. Its headline is, The Flames of Negro Revolution. Aganyok, number 21, May 1963. I haven't been to the American South. The State Department stubbornly keeps Soviet correspondence out of the southern states. But I've followed events from American journalists and TV reports. The prison scene filmed by a TV news correspondent immediately after the arrest of schoolchildren participating in the demonstration had the strongest impression on me. The eyes of eight-year-old kids looked at me through the iron prison bars. They had just seen angry dogs in front of them and white police officers grabbing and throwing them into police vans. There was bewilderment in the children's huge eyes, a tense desire to understand what was happening, but there was no fear in them. The kids did not smile, but they did not cry either. All the ideological tropes you'd expect from Soviet reporting on the civil rights movement are conspicuously absent. The American Communist Party is rarely mentioned. There's no puffed-up proletariat in the vanguard, nor does it lecture how only communism will save black people. The agents in these stories tend to be black people themselves, with Martin Luther King as the most visible leader. Reading over Soviet press coverage of the civil rights movement offered other surprises. The reporting was more detailed than I assumed. Soviet journalists covered the protests and boycotts to desegregate schools and universities, transportation, restaurants, and other businesses in cities and towns throughout the South. All the high notes were given playing time. Authoring Lucy and the desegregation of the University of Alabama in 1956, the Freedom Rides in 1961, the church bombing that killed four black girls, resulting in demonstrations and police violent reprisals in Birmingham in 1963, and the March on Washington, to name a few. Reports on violence dominated, including the beatings of Freedom Riders William Barbie and Jim Zweig, the murders of Emmett Till, Medgar Evers, John Robinson. But violence is newsworthy. At rare moments, Soviet correspondents focused on the movement's methods and culture. Aganyok, number 21, May 1963. Dr. King's Christian organization led the demonstration in Birmingham, but the Student Coordinating Committee participated in this battle. It left its mark on events. Demonstrators, as always, gathered in the Negro Church. The Church is the safest, and in the South, the only place where Negroes can gather. But they didn't sing prayers, but songs of freedom composed by students jailed in March. And even when the old prayers of the Negro spirituals echoed, the words were new. Our enemy segregation, just like a pail of garbage in the alley. And before I'll be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. Yeah.
this year, 68 is usually important in Soviet reporting from the United States. Uh, and they are fascinated by the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. And they're going to pick that these are the agendas of the United States, and they're absolutely surprised how big the anti-establishment rebellion in the U.S. gets. And so a lot of reporting comes from that. The U.S. was a magical place for many Soviet people, especially for the young. It was the home of global pop culture, rock and roll, Hollywood, blue jeans. So the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War were a good yardstick to measure reality against the dream and how the USSR stacked up against its Cold War rival. There is a lot of mirroring. There's a lot of comparative writing, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit. For them to make sense of their lives overseas, of what they've seen, of being really you know, at the heart of a system that is alien to everything that they grew up with and everything that they know about. So it's not surprising that along with civil rights, the U.S. war in Vietnam was also a point of focus and sarcasm. They, I mean, they're fascinated by the Vietnam War and they write a lot about the Vietnam War, so much so that American officials get really worried. Like the only part of Soviet reporting from the United States that Americans are really worried about is Vietnam. Vietnam and American racism were stories that told themselves. Soviet reporters had to do little to cast a pall on America's global image. And American officials knew this. And sometimes, Dina says, U.S. officials privately admitted Soviet propaganda wasn't always wrong. Take, for example, the reaction to Boris Strelnikov's short article, Arsonists. Strelnikov opened with telling his Soviet readers about Smokey, a bear cub that was rescued from a New Mexico fire and all the cute American kids who visited Smokey. Sterlnikov also noted that the U.S. military tasked the same fighter fighters who rescued Smokey to start forest fires in Vietnam. And so he ends this piece with comparing the American kids who go and see Smokey the bear cub in the zoo and Vietnamese kids who are being smoked out of their house and forests by the same people who saved Smokey the bear. The article circulates around the Soviet desk in the U.S. State Department, and people start commenting on it. So the first comment says something like, hardly innocuous example of recent Soviet propaganda. And then somebody else says, sadly, though, not unjustified. Radio News on the Hour. Now here is Lou Wood. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., father of the nonviolent movement in the American civil rights struggle. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has Dr. been Martin shot Luther to death King in was Memphis. Shot and killed in Memphis, Tennessee this evening by a sniper. One of the first things to hit you when looking at Teddy Rose's travel diary is that it begins on April 5th, 1968. It was one day after. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th, 1968. So I asked Teddy when he heard about King's murder. I don't even remember that. Obviously, I was listening to the voice of America and others. It's conceivable that there was so much turmoil in the United States that it was not a high priority on the news from the United States, the aftermath of the killing of Martin Luther King. But surely someone must have asked him about King. 
the only time that the subject of discrimination came up were in the so-called official discussions. They only talked generically as well about the treatment of blacks. And um, Martin Luther King never came up in that context either. I'm surprised nobody brought up King to Teddy. As we learned, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King did receive a fair share of Soviet news coverage. When news of King's assassination broke, headlines from the Soviet press cried, the USA, the country of violence and racism, the new crimes of American racists, and murder of freedom. A week or so later, the April cover of the Soviet satirical magazine, Krokodil, depicted a bloodied American cop, a Klansman, and a politician cynically mourning over a black corpse. The caption reads, were read with shame. They saw it as fulfilling all their major stereotypes of U.S. society uh, and of the violence of American racism. King's assassination fulfilled all that. Izvestia, 6 April 1968. Again murder, again America and again a shot from a sniper rifle. Honest America so defenselessly stands in the crosshairs of the same rifle, and the next cartridge is in rifle's barrel. The sight is aimed at a new victim. The killer's finger is on the trigger. The people of the world are like this. We experience your tragedy, America. We're ashamed and hurt for your shame. We saw Dr. King collapse on the balcony. We heard the killer's quick footsteps flee on the street and drive away, and our hearts boil with anger. Where are you looking, America? Why do massacre your best sons? King's murder also confirmed how the Soviets understood the Vietnam War, that they were born of the same imperialist violence. Racism at home begot racism abroad. Aganyok, number 16, April 1968. King's understanding of American problems broadened as his character grew stronger in struggle. It is no accident that he found himself in the ranks of those Americans who demanded an end to American crimes in Vietnam. Indeed, the bullet that entered King's body was made of the same lead as the bullets fired at the Vietnamese. One crime begot the other. This is logical. And there's a desire to seize on the major uprisings that occur in the wake of King's assassination as further evidence of the bankruptcy of American capitalism. In terms of Martin Luther King, of course, after his assassination, he becomes uh, a martyr. But it really happens only after his death. When he was alive, they didn't quite know what to make of him, apparently, in the internal KGB correspondence, he was referred to as a stooge, as an Uncle Tom. Uh, so there was no love lost there. What Maxime is referring to are notes from the former KGB archivist turned defector Vasily Matrokin took about a KGB operation to discredit King. Having realized that Soviet efforts to influence King fell flat, the KGB authorized a plan to plant articles in the African press calling King and his aides Uncle Toms. 
and in the pocket of the U.S. government, among other slanders. The hope was for the articles to get picked up in the American press. King would be discredited, and more radical black leaders like Stokely Carmichael would fill the vacuum. The KGB plan is hilarious in its naivete. Whether the KGB actually implemented this operation is unknown, and no one has yet to provide any evidence that it was. However, the KGB did engage in other dirty tricks around race. KGB officers in New York bombarded African diplomats with forged letters with all sorts of racist rants, allegedly from white supremacists. In his memoir, KGB general-turned-defector Oleg Kalugin wrote that he lost no sleep over such dirty tricks, figuring they were just another weapon in the Cold War. This was despite his personal admiration for King. But as a KGB man, he welcomed the violence brought on by racism in King's assassination. The Soviet press portrayal of King throughout the 1950s and 1960s, however, was respectful and positive, suggesting that Soviet views of the civil rights movement were hardly a monolith or shifted with circumstances. But the press didn't pit King against American black radicals. The Soviet press presented King as a martyr after his assassination. It was the shame of America. Remember, Soviet anti-racism was subordinate to Soviet foreign policy interests. It was just another weapon in the Cold War, as Kalugin put it. So despite the favorable press coverage, the Soviets did have suspicions, ambivalences, and favorites. I think the Soviets were very ambivalent, to put it mildly, about uh, Martin Luther King, for example. He was, uh, he was a Baptist preacher. Uh, he obviously took his religion seriously. He was not really an anti-communist, but uh, you know he also was not open to the Soviet Union to the extent I think they would have loved him to be open. And that applies, I think, not just to Martin Luther King, but to a number of civil rights icons in the United States. Martin Luther King and John Lewis presented a particular challenge. In the mid-1960s, King began criticizing the USSR over the treatment of Soviet Jews. While Jews in Russia may not be physically murdered as they were in Nazi Germany, they are facing every day a kind of spiritual and cultural genocide. Negroes can well understand and sympathize with this problem. When you are written out of history as a people, when you are given no choice but to accept the majority culture, you are denied an aspect of your own identity. Uh, and of course, John Lewis later on would continue to do this and would become uh, very much involved with the Soviet Jewry movement. Uh, so there is this obviously connection that didn't make them beloved figures or the Soviets. And what of black radicals like Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, and the Black Panthers? Malcolm X, uh, they didn't like him. You know, they uh, they barely he's barely mentioned in Soviet propaganda, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, again, connection to Islam, connection to religion. About Black Panthers, um, why uh, I think the Soviets, at least the officialdom. Uh, we're very suspicious of them. A lot of these guys, people like Huey Newton and uh, Stockley Carmichael, 
whether they like it or not, we're going to use the word black power and let them address themselves to that. But that we are not going to wait for white people to sanction black power. We're tired waiting. They were radical, obviously, and uh, they were infatuated with, co uh, with communism at certain points. Uh, but the, the infatuation was far more with China. Uh, so I think there was this apprehension on the part of Soviet ideologues that, you know, the Black Panthers uh, or even civil rights activists uh, could not be easily controlled. At the same time, the Panthers and other radical groups allowed the Soviets to say, They are proving that American democracy, American freedom is really bankrupt because they don't have the basic social and economic rights that our citizens have. Despite the sincere media coverage and even crass propaganda, the Soviet anti-racism never enjoyed widespread appeal among African Americans. There was the generation gap. The Soviets just didn't understand America's young militants and African American ones even less. Nor were black activists all that enamored with the Soviet Union. Unlike the 1920s and 1930s, there was no longer a large cohort of black radicals interested in Soviet anti-racism. Black activists in the 1960s had the sort of realization that Soviet leaders weren't really interested in uh, affecting real change in the United States. You know, they had given up. Uh, they saw the Soviet Union in many ways as being just as problematic as U.S. leaders. Uh, and so that's a major loss. And even those who might be sympathetic to the Soviets did in hushed and qualified tones. The Cold War had a disciplinary effect on the civil rights movement. Activists had to walk a fine line to avoid being labeled a communist, and often they were regardless. So there's a desire to conform with what is considered more American rights, just even how the NAACP had wanted to wage a, a broader struggle in the wake of the Second World War that looked at social and economic rights as human rights. But the pressures of American anti-communism were so strong that they were essentially cowered into focusing on a legal movement of political and civil rights. So Soviet ideologists stressed anti-racism as a hallmark of a good Soviet citizen. Soviet journalists reported on the civil rights movement in America, and Soviet propaganda labeled racism the shame of America. So what should we make of all this but you lynch blacks that proved so irritating to Teddy as it inspired sarcastic jokes? As we heard in previous episodes, Soviet people were fascinated with the United States. And one of the ways they learned about the U.S. was through images and stories about race relations. It's hard to gauge how anti-racism went down with Soviet citizens. What we do know is that the reactions were complicated and contradictory. Some Soviet observers expressed exhaustion with the fact that this is still a problem, right? That uh, why can't you get this right? Why aren't things changing as, as quickly as um, they should? And American race relations could also serve to indirectly criticize racial and ethnic relations in Soviet society. You can talk about American race relations in a way that also is an indictment against Soviet policies, Soviet nationality policies, um, and the continued presence of racism and discrimination, not only against African students, but against you know, non-Russian minorities in the Soviet Union. For others, especially the urban intelligentsia, the Soviet indictment of American racism was only propaganda. And there's certainly some question as to how seriously people took the Soviet anti-racist message. It was assumed that 
the newspapers lied, that, uh, you know, the, the official uh, propaganda lied. So I don't think to what extent people actually paid attention. And again, this would have to be researched. You know, I just never really studied it closely. You know, it's just my personal anecdotal experience. Some segments of society probably have that as well. You know, who people who just completely have tuned it out and written it off as, you know, it's all formulaic propaganda. The rejection of anti-racism, especially among Soviet dissidents, could descend into the belligerent and even the embrace of racism. For example, in his memoirs, the American Slavicist Karl Proffer relayed the Soviet poet Joseph Brodsky's dissident racism. Brodsky openly called for the civilized world to nuke the Vietnamese because they weren't human. American blacks had nothing to complain about. And Brodsky told of a Russian gulag inmate who asked to be sent to a black ghetto. The message was that whatever problems American blacks had, Soviet people had it worse. I would take it further. I think, you know, again, here lies another explanation to what happens after after the Soviet collapse or during perestroika when all this sort of pent-up racism just sort of bursts out into the open. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that, you know, especially the educated elites just assumed they were lied to. And uh, uh, also the kinds of um, uh, black icons they saw, people who were really fettered by the state, they were, in their eyes, considered to be very privileged. So I think there was quite a bit of jealousy. There was a little, a lot of cynicism involved. Soviet anti-racism was a lot of things at once. A sincere position born from Marxism-Leninism, propaganda to hurl at the U.S., and a means to bolster the Soviet's international image, especially among people of color, as a raceless and tolerant society. Regardless, and I think this is the real takeaway. The Soviet Union uh, was still advocating the causes that I think were just. You can dislike the Soviet Union as much as you do. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan personally. You know, you really have to go through this with a toothbrush and sort of separate uh, the ideology, the propaganda value, the, uh, the hypocrisy uh, from something that was genuinely good. And I think there was something genuinely good about it. So it's complex. I mean, that's why I like it. It's it's just messy. It's it's it defies any attempt to portray the Soviet Union in a black-white, you know, sort of manner. Next time on Teddy Goes to the USSR, Teddy meets the Soviet people. There's an understanding that real daily life in the Soviet Union is something that is hidden. They had a sort of a velvet covering. They would hide everything. I did have guides from time to time, and they said it most innocently, everything is perfect here. And they use these metaphors of parting and veiling, exploring, discovering. I had no illusions. They will be talking to people that I just talked to accidentally, or was it accidental? And that is why in the Soviet gloss, there is a phrase, and this phrase is don't make us feel ashamed 
when you behave like this and there are foreigners around. I, I would say that one of the greatest strokes of luck that I had was meeting Lev, but not anything that would suggest that they may have been planted. So they had this core of, of people who were very pro-regime didn't question. This becomes even more the case in the 1970s. One of the ways the Soviet Union sells its system to the rest of the world as, as a model that you two can copy. And, and youth are the proof that that works. Well, that's fine when you're robust, when your teeth are slipping and you're, and you're slurring your speech and you can't remember where you are and people are watching this on television. The, the authority evaporated. And yet, against that backdrop, the Soviet Union was crumbling from within. It's, it's certainly not quite so simple as kind of for or against. Um, and it, it really depends a great deal on who you talk to about this. There is also an increased amount of skepticism in Soviet society to the scientific authority that manifests itself in the interest to all things paranormal, like horoscopes and uh, UFOs, things like that. I think, invent the idea of stagnation way before Gorbachev. The genre of self-help literature in the Soviet context emerged in the late 1960s, in hundreds of thousands and some probably in millions of copies. Will the Russians ever become like us? All of them, which contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union, because the world was changing quickly around them. And with the advent of satellites, they couldn't hide all kinds of stuff. Eddie Goes to USSR is written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Thanks to Laura Belmonte, Dina Feinberg, Andrew Jacob, Maxime Masusevich, and Meredith Roman for their participation. Special thanks to Teddy Rowe for sharing his story, diary, and photographs. Voiceovers were by Eve Barden. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Elliot Holmes. Funding for Teddy Goes to the USSR was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Russian East European and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and monthly patrons of the SRD podcast. If you want to learn more about Teddy's trip and the Soviet Union, go to the series website, teddy2ussr.com. And if you're enjoying Teddy Goes to the USSR, please consider becoming a patron of the SRD podcast so we can do more narrative audio like this. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash blog. You can also follow Teddy Goes to the USSR on your favorite podcast app. 